So we're uh, concluding today our sermon series on the book of Romans, and we're going to be reading a few different sections of chapters 15 and 16. And if you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in 15 verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to conform the promise given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ, Jesus to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, 
according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made to known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. How do you conclude a letter like Romans? One of uh, the most dense representations of Paul's theology. We've been wading through it for a number of weeks. And all along as we've been proceeding through Romans, we've been going for a big picture. Understanding the book as a whole. Understanding that Paul's argument in Romans is that resurrection... The resurrection of one man in the middle of history changes everything. We've said that really to understand Romans, one has to understand that this is a very significant claim. This is something that Paul is arguing, and it would not be something that was easily accessible. Paul, in one sense, is arguing that the story has taken a very different direction. I personally happen to be a lover of good stories, and... Uh, there are certain elements that make a good story. So take Star Wars, for example. You have all the elements that go into an excellent story. Right? You have a rebellious group seeking freedom from an imperial power. You have a great villain in Darth Vader. You have a smuggler, a love story, and the coolest, though perhaps most ineffective weapon ever invented, the lightsaber. You have all these wonderful elements of story, and yet uh, the story can become corrupted when a destructive force, when an incompetent force like George Lucas comes to handle all the elements of that story and then drives the story mercilessly into the ground. Boys and girls, if you are fans of Star Wars, we may have to fight a little bit after the opening of this sermon. I am no fan of what Lucas did with his story. You know, once you get to the Battle of the Teddy Bears, known as Ewoks, in Return of the Jedi, it all goes down from there when uh, Lucas ultimately invents the most ridiculous character in all of movie history, who is Jar Jar Binks. Now, this was a very big week, though, right? If you were paying attention, uh, in the last few weeks, Disney bought Star Wars, from uh, George Lucas for the piddly sum of $4 billion and handed it over to J.J. Abrams. Right, No lightweight in the storytelling world. To his credits are uh, shows like Lost and The Fringe, and he has done movies such as Super 8 and the most recent Star Trek movie. And so I'm a fan of J.J. Abrams, and I was a big fan of the show Lost, even though Every time I bring up loss, my wife makes an indiscernible sound like... (laughs) Uh, So, maybe one of you, boys and girls, will go with me to go see the new Star Wars movie when it comes out, because my wife will not, and we can enjoy that. Uh, So, it's handed off to J.J. Abrams. They announced the cast this week. Carrie Fisher, uh, Harrison Ford, Mark Hamill, all are coming back. The original Chewbacca, R2-D2, C-3PO. And so everyone thinks, can, can the story actually be transformed? Can it be saved from where Lucas has taken it? Is there any hope? And we all wait. I know, you're waiting with bated breath. 
Now, that is perhaps a bit of a silly metaphor, but if you are serious, seriously like Star Wars and you seriously don't like what Lucas has done, that he's in a sense destroyed the story, what well, was a very good story, you begin to, to wrestle with, you begin to have a feeling of what Paul is wrestling with as he writes the letter of Romans. You see, the Christian story started out all well and good. It started out beautifully with God's people being created in the garden and God being in the kind of intimate relationship with His people that they would walk together in the shade of the garden. And then a very destructive force, which is sin, enters into the story and continues seemingly every turn where God begins to bring the story up, sin reemerges and takes the story back down. And you have this ebb and flow until you get to Jesus. And Paul is saying that not just in the arrival of Jesus, that would be one thing, but it's in the death and resurrection of Jesus that God has made His promises true. God has proved His faithfulness. Now that is a shocking claim, and it's a shocking claim because the promises have been different than the death and resurrection of one man. The people in the first century, particularly those who were living and seeking to honor God, knew their Old Testaments very well, and their Old Testament spoke of promises to Abraham that included land and many children, and that through those children there would be a blessing to the nations. And as the Old Testament story goes on, the promises get even bigger, that ultimately God would reestablish Israel, and Jerusalem as its capital, and the Gentiles would bring their wealth and riches into Jerusalem. That Israel would be victorious in a very geopolitical sense. This is the language that's employed in the Old Testament. And you come to Paul, and you come to the death and resurrection of one man, and Paul is saying, all of those promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Really? Okay, land? No, no land. Romans own all the land. Children? Well, we've grown. Yeah, we keep having children, but a blessing to the nations? Israel's a backwater. An insignificant group of people, not playing much of a role in the Roman world, hardly can be construed as being a blessing to the nations, certainly hasn't been reestablished in any prominent sense, and instead of being established and the Gentiles coming in, it seems that God has desired for His grace to go out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. In one sense, it almost seems like every promise has been a failure. And here comes Paul saying, no, we have to re-understand the promises because the death and resurrection of one man in the middle of history has changed everything. Even the resurrection, which is a very late development in the biblical, in the Old Testament story, right? If you go back to the beginning of the Old Testament, the first half, there's nothing about resurrection. People don't know what happens. But as God reveals more to His people, there's more talk of resurrection. But resurrection is always perceived that at the right time, God will enter the story and redeem Israel and raise all of Israel. There's no talk of a one-person resurrection. And so even when we get to the resurrection, we think, yeah, that was an expectation for some Jews that it would happen to all people. And Paul's saying, no, actually, it did happen for all people, but not yet because it's happened for one man, and he's the one man that represents all. And you think, goodness, Paul, you feel a little bit like you're playing some gymnastics here. To really wrestle with Romans, to wrestle with the idea that resurrection changes everything, you have to get a feel for the notion that in the first century, 
Romans is a crazy argument. There are lots of reasons to say, yeah, I don't see this really fitting with where the story has been headed. That's one of the things that actually is a great encouragement to my faith. Because if the resurrection wasn't true, I don't think anyone would buy it. Romans, or any of the other stories that are laid out. They're absurd twists that no one would have expected. God's wisdom confounds everyone in the first century. And it is only by virtue that Romans actually becomes a compelling argument. See, the resurrection must be true. Otherwise, it would be considered silly. And so as we begin to wrestle with the reality that resurrection is a profound argument and that it changed everything on a grand scope in terms of God's redemption, then we begin to say, oh, well, if it's that big and it changed everything to that extent, then resurrection must change everything for me. Resurrection changes everything, which the corollary then must also be true. If things aren't changing for me, if I've gone through the past week and there has been no really intentional or thoughtful reference to resurrection, then why do you think you believe in resurrection at all? This is the question that we must wrestle with as we conclude the book of Romans. And one more time, I'm going to argue to you the resurrection changes everything. And I think that's how Paul closes his letter. First of all, resurrection changes the story itself. Look at verses 8 and 9. Why has Christ come? What was the purpose? He came to become a servant to the circumcised, a servant to the Jewish people, that He might reveal God's truthfulness. Well, how is He doing that? He's confirming the promises given to the patriarchs. Just as we said, all of the promises that have been laid forth have been affirmed in the arrival of Jesus, and God's mercy has gone out to the Gentiles. In fact, Romans 15, verses 8 and 9, is a very good summary of the letter as a whole. If you wrestle with verses 8 and 9 of chapter 15 and get a bearing on what those implications are and what Paul is talking about, you've got a pretty good handle on how to approach the letter as a whole. It's a good framework. So Paul's beginning to land this great ship that has been the book of Romans. And saying, yes, Jesus came. God incarnated himself. He became a servant of the circumcised. Why? So that the promises might be confirmed. They might be fulfilled and made true. And so the challenge that has been the challenge of the book all along, but as he closes his letter, is do you believe that the resurrection is the fulfillment of God's promises? To the church in Rome, do you believe that the resurrection is the fulfillment of God's promises. And that, therefore, really is the question to us. In a big sense, in a life sense, but also in an everyday sense. Do you believe that the resurrection is the fulfillment of God's promises, not just to the patriarchs, but to you, because it is the inclusion of the Gentiles? And that's why Paul goes on to list three quotations from the Old Testament where the Gentiles were called to worship God. Frankly, the Gentiles didn't have a lot of reason to worship God in the Old Testament. But now, as a result of resurrection, you, Gentiles, are included. We are included, and now we have much reason to praise if we really believe. And of course, talking about belief in our day and age is a hard thing. Because when we hear the word believe, we think, oh, I agree with an idea. Yeah, I believe the earth is round. I believe that gravity holds me to the sphere. But when we're talking about belief in the story of the resurrected Son of God, we're talking about 
does our life actually change as a result of resurrection? Does our whole framework actually shift as a result? That's what belief is in Paul's world and in his mind. Do you believe? I uh, watched a, uh, recently a 60 Minutes piece that aired, I think, a week or two ago that told the story of Nicholas Winton, who is a uh, largely unsung hero in some ways because he never really told a story. He's an incredibly humble man. In the 1930s, Winton was a stockbroker in London, and he watched with dismay as Nazi Germany was coming to power. And he continued to read and follow what was happening and saw that Nazi Germany was encroaching in the late 30s on uh, an area, uh, part of what we know today as Czechoslovakia. And uh, Winton felt like he had to do something. And so Winton, he took a two-week vacation to Prague, and he set up an artificial front for children's services and began to ferry out children from Czechoslovakia to London to be received into the safety of various families there. And through a lot of fabricated documents and bending some rules and uh, playing a bit fast and loose, he was able to see 669 children safely out of Czechoslovakia. And now they, they number over 15,000 people that he brought out. Now, uh, the, the challenge of the story, or the really interesting part of the story, is, is what happens for the Jewish people in Czechoslovakia at the time. See, word starts spreading in Prague that there's an opportunity to get your children out and you see Nazi Germany coming. Jews are being moved into ghettos and in refugee camps. You're starting to hear rumors of pretty bad things, but they're just taking children out. So it's kind of like, who gets off the boat first? And so as a parent, you face the decision, do I put my children on the train and send them to I don't know where, trusting this individual, hoping that perhaps I see them again in the future, but knowing that there's a possibility that I won't. And so the parents wrestled with this mightily, and the people who initially partook in this program were largely criticized and condemned. They thought, you are crazy to send your children off to another place of the world? That is, that's astonishing. How could you do such a thing? And this was happening in the summer, 1938 or 1939, and it was in September 1 uh, of that year that war would be declared and the train stopped running out of Czechoslovakia as Nazi Germany ran over Czechoslovakia, and new lines were laid, and all the rail for uh, Jews living in Czechoslovakia started running to Auschwitz. And so if you didn't get out on that train, you died in the Holocaust of World War II. And so they're interviewing these children who are now old, and this guy, Nicholas Winton, is actually still alive. He's 104. And it's fascinating. You should go watch it online. Um, But they're interviewing the children. And the children are, of course, terrible. They never actually knew about Winton. So they learn later and are incredibly grateful. It's the only reason they're alive. But they uh, they always get to the point of talking about their parents, and they just begin weeping. And they're all so grateful. You know, you think, would there be mixed emotions? You know, how do you process this? 
And they all have these tokens that their parents sent with them on the train, uh, to, you know, to go with them, tokens of their love and, um, that they've kept as these prized possessions. And all of them are saying, I cannot believe the strength that it required, was required of my parents to say goodbye to me on the train. Some pretended that the kids were going to holiday. Some told the kids the truth. And that was the last time that they would see their parents. And I thought, what, what a profoundly difficult act of love. And what a remarkable thing to, to respect that out of love for their children, they would place them on the train. And the thing that the story made me reflect on was, you know, we talk about resurrection sometimes, almost in an abstract sense. Yes, Jesus had to live a perfect life. He had to go to the cross. He had to be resurrected. This is how you balance the equation of human sin. And once it's balanced, we're okay. I don't think we really think about what it meant for the Trinity to actually engage this aspect of redemption. That at at some point, the Son agrees to go, become incarnate, and agrees to go to the cross. And the Father knows that they will be severed. And to be sure, this is to some extent speculation. right? But it's a speculation that's driven by Jesus on his knees, sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, if there's any other way, let it come to pass. And so what did it mean for the Father to put the Son on that train that He knew would go to incarnation and to the cross so that us, His other children, might be made children again? We marvel at that love and compassion of a human parent, but do we really pause and stop thinking about how to balance the equation of salvation? I think, what did it mean for the Trinity to engage that kind of love? to exercise that love so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be included in something that is indeed salvific. See, when Paul talks about belief, it's not just sent to an idea, but the the notion of Romans and really the gospel as a whole is do you understand the depth of love that God has for you that he would send his son to the cross and he would be resurrected? Resurrection changes everything because it redefines love in the entire cosmos. We have no notion of love, at least God's love, apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, as we wrestle with the question of do we believe, it's really, it's not just do we believe, but do you dare to believe that you are loved to that extent? Because when you do start to believe that you're loved to that extent, then everything does change. So resurrection changes the story, but resurrection also changes our hope. Look at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Interesting. Why is our God, the God of of Paul, called the God of hope? How is it that He fills us with joy and peace? Well, it is through believing. Why is believing the necessary way to experience that joy and peace? I had to wrestle a lot with verse 13 in approaching today because, you know, frankly, and this is part driven because someone was recently saying, you know, I don't like to be honest in church um, because, you know, people seem to have things together. And I don't feel like I do. I thought, what a sad commentary on the church. What a sad commentary on us. 
that we pretend to be so put together. You know, when, when Paul talks about joy and peace being the result of believing, I struggle to experience joy and peace, particularly joy. I'm a, a product of my age to some extent being cynical, but I also find contempt an easy path to go down. And so anytime I go down that path, joy is removed. And, you know, everyone struggles with different aspects of their faith. I struggle with the notion that God is silent. You know, wouldn't it be nice if God showed up now and again and you had a little audible voice, little burning bush moment, little like, yeah, nice job, or, you know, Ryan, I'd really prefer you don't go down that way. Or, yeah, I know you've been praying about this for a really long time. Good job, here's the answer. Wouldn't that be lovely? In some ways, perhaps? Right? Why is God silent? Oh, yes, perhaps we talk about, you know, moving us in certain ways by the Spirit. But really, can't we have a conversation? Isn't that part of having a relationship with someone? Imagine I married the spouse who is silent. Actually, my wife probably feels that way sometimes, but, right? It's not much of a relationship. It's hard to have that with someone who's quiet, and God feels that way sometimes. So, uh, and I relay that to you because uh, it would be really sad if we pretended to... um, to possess a faith that we didn't, or to pretend that walking with Jesus comes easier than it does. But it's when I face something like that that I always I find a very helpful question to say, okay, well, what would happen if God did start show up and speaking? You know what? That's what I want. I want to hear from him in a more dramatic way. It doesn't feel terribly selfish, but I start to think about it. I say, well, okay, God shows up and he speaks. I say, well, that's tremendous. But if he starts speaking, well, I expect him to speak all the time, audibly. You know, won't that become the standard? Like, I'm longing for it, and won't I be seeking that out all the time and waiting on that? And then what if he says something that I don't actually like? Right? Well, then we have to get into a long discussion on semantics. You know, what what is the definition of is? God, let's talk about it. And he may, you know, who am I to assume that God would, would engage in that? Or that would be honoring to him, or that would be good for me? Or what if someone perceived that God had told them something, but I perceived that he had told me something else? That seems like it's a lot of opportunity for division in the body. Maybe it's much better that we have a word that's written down that's a little bit more objective than I heard you heard. And maybe by hearing God's audible voice, I would be so caught up in the ecstasy of that moment that I would become addicted to it and I really wouldn't engage the world and I would just wait. I would fast and sit in a field until I got to hear it again. If you begin to go down that road, you realize maybe, maybe the way God has approached us, maybe the way God is communicating with us is really well thought out. And maybe it prevents us from greater sin, from greater selfishness, from really... When I think about the hardness of my heart, I realize, oh, maybe I really want to hear God's voice because I just want to experience the ecstasy of experiencing Him in a certain way, not really because I want to glorify Him or learn what it means to be a disciple of Jesus or learn what it means to bear His image in this world. I realize, oh, believing means trusting. Believing means going back to the resurrection. If the resurrection is true, then that changes everything. And that makes me trust that God, even though He fulfills His promises in remarkably surprising ways, I have every reason by virtue of the resurrection to trust that even if He chooses to be silent in some capacity, that that may be very well and good.
It might indeed be the best thing for me. And so resurrection changes our hope. Thirdly, resurrection changes your story. Look at verse, uh, chapter 15, verses 16 and 20. Paul says, uh, that the only thing that he now cares about is that he would be uh, a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. And then if you drop down to verse 20, it says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul's story has been utterly brought up, drawn into the story of Jesus. He says, my story isn't so important anymore, except to the degree that it is a conduit for communicating the story of Jesus. And so what does your life communicate? Is it a story that is all about your story, or is it a story that actually reveals and reflects the story of Jesus that becomes a conduit of telling that story? We've talked some weeks past, but I was, I was reading more about the human brain and realized, man, we are really good storytellers. But so often we're telling the wrong story. In the 1960s, there was a surgeon named uh, Joe Boggan. And Joe Boggan was a bit of a uh, visionary, perhaps a little bit on the edge, because uh, he was working on seizures And apparently seizures will start in one part of the brain and then they will spread. And people were having very traumatic uh, seizures that were um, being uh, having long-lasting effects and sometimes killing the individual who experienced the seizure. Joe Boggan is working on this. He's doing research. And he realizes that there's one one bundle of nerves that connects the left and right half of the brain. Boggan says, we can do a lot of good if we limit the extent to which a seizure can spread in the brain I want to cut that bundle of nerves in half. I want to separate the left and right sides of the brain. And this was being, he was talking about people who are highly traumatized by regular and hugely significant seizures. And people said, you're crazy. At least I imagine some people said that. Looking back many years, I think that's crazy. But they did a lot of research on animals and everything they observed told them that the animals lived normal lives after the separation had occurred. So they started doing it, started going in and cutting this bundle of nerves. So the left and right half uh, halves of the brain were separated, and it dramatically improved the life of the individuals. The seizure wasn't allowed to spread in the brain. It wasn't, therefore, that extensive or as extensive. Um, but then they began to say, well, is this person really normal? Let's study this for a while. And so lots of studies commenced. And one of the fascinating things they realized is, um, that the left side of the brain is is responsible for uh, processing language. So they did a lot of tests where they covered up one eye and showed um, showed pictures on one side of a line and on the other side of an eye, so it would be processed by different sides of the brain. And anything that was seen uh, was taken in by the left side of the brain was processed normally. You showed a picture, and they said, oh, it's a picture of a snowman. You know, ding, 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 you got it right. And then they, they would show, and the images were flashed incredibly quickly. And so they would do images that would then be processed by the right side of the brain. And they said, what did you see? And the person couldn't tell you. Because the image can't get to the part of the brain that processes language. 
But if you laid it out in front of them and said, what did you see, which image, they could point to it to identify the image that they had seen. So now, here's the interesting part, is when they started to show them uh, pictures um, together, they would... Um, they, they went through an experiment where they would show some pictures that, uh, two pictures, and they would say, um, they would show one that's processed by the left side of the brain. And so, say they would, they would show, um, say a picture of a claw of a chicken was one of the experiments. And then, so it's processed through the left side of the brain, and they say, which of these new images goes through with the image you saw? And they say, oh, well, I picked the chicken. It goes with the claw of the chicken. And then they said, um, okay, well, here's a picture of a shed. Which of the items now goes with the shed? And they chose a shovel, but they can't tell you why. They have no cognition of why they're choosing a shovel because they've just seen it and they have no language inside their brain or coming out of their mouth to process the decision. They pick a shovel. And so they said, oh, well, why did you pick the shovel? And without hesitation, nobody said, oh, well, you know, I chose it because it goes into the shed. The claw goes with the chicken, the shovel goes with the shed. They immediately made up a plausible story to explain why the shovel went with the other two images that they had processed linguistically. So they processed that, oh, I saw a chicken, I choose a chicken claw to go with the chicken, then I chose a shovel. I don't actually know why I chose the shovel, but without hesitation, I'm going to tell you that I picked the shovel because it's necessary to clean up the chicken coop. And without hesitation, time after time, people did this, and it became a new phenomenon that was named confabulation. That when the brain lacks the actual criteria by which to understand a story or a process, your brain, unbeknownst to you, will actually make up a story so that it makes sense. Right? Confabulation. And so, to what degree are we involved in confabulation all the time? Yeah, I've got these elements. I don't really know how to make sense of them. But I'm going to come up with a story that puts them together. This is why Jesus' story becoming our story is so necessary. Right? That we aren't left to continually live in a story that we are continually fabricating, but that our story becomes true and important and significant because it becomes a conduit of telling the story of Jesus. And this is what Paul understood, that resurrection changes your story. And lastly, briefly, resurrection changes your obedience. Look at the end of 16. As as Paul offers up this amazing doxology, this amazing statement of praise to God, at the end he speaks of this mystery. We, everyone has always wondered how the promises would come to be fulfilled. The mystery has been revealed. It has been disclosed um, through the prophetic writings, but made known to all nations in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That revelation of mystery in, in 25. But as I continue in verse 26, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. What has been Paul's purpose in writing? Ultimately, that that as he begins Romans, he says there's a great problem that real obedience can't be manufactured through the law, and real obedience can't be manufactured even through a good person who is um, 
who orders their life according to what God has revealed in the creation. But at the end, he says, if you understand the love of God that is expressed in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that is what brings about the obedience of faith. Because you begin to understand the degree to which you have been loved and that everything has changed and that to the degree that you change according to the story of Jesus, that is what brings life. Because he has brought life to you. The Father has not spared His own Son, but allowed Him to go to destruction so that you might be redeemed. Resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus is the greatest act in communication of love ever. And if you actually begin to weigh that, I was reading recently an essay that I found Terribly insightful, and the author was just essentially saying this. We live in an age in which we are inundated with information. You go online and read something, and then you go to the next thing and read it, and to the next thing and read it. And now, books have become so prolific that you read a book and it it sends you to five other books, and the books pile up on your desk, and you can't possibly read fast enough. And one activity takes you to another activity. And on and on it goes, and he says... You know what? I'm, I'm desperately afraid that we now live in an age in which we so busily move from one piece of information to another and one activity to another that we're actually going to miss that one important insight that might be life-changing. He's reflecting on the past. He says, on the past, you know, you read far fewer books, you were inundated with information, and you had the time to mull it over. You might take the time to actually read the chapter of a book three or five or ten times. And it's in that meditation and mulling it over that you actually begin to, to take it into the degree that it changes you, alters who you are, and changes your course. And the author was saying, you know what? I think we've, we've become addicted to a level of inundation that we've given that up. It's not even possible anymore. Unless you make it intentionally possible. And frankly, as, as we conclude, thinking, you know, how do we end Romans? My biggest fear is that we would walk out and say, yep, resurrection changes everything, and go right on to the next thing. Whether it be a program, a sporting event, a book, okay, what's the next sermon series? I'm going to start reading that. Instead, take time to mull it over. Take time to ponder it. Because if what Paul is saying is true, then resurrection really does change everything. And you know what? At least speaking for myself, not that much has changed in my life. Which means either that Paul is wrong or that I don't understand resurrection. And I sure hope it's the latter. Let's pray. Father, we wonder at that you would fulfill all of your grand promises in actually becoming human and dying and being raised from the dead. And it is that promise to us. And may we look forward to, may our hearts be lifted, may our eyes gaze to the horizon of our own resurrection as we come to your table this morning. We ask for your grace in this. In Christ's name, amen.